Mr. Derek Veenhoff. He's better known as Deke. Drinking liquor with DJ Deke, we out laughing. Yo, Deke. Okay, guys, welcome back to the show. I'm here today with Lalo Dagash. Welcome, Lalo. Hey, and thanks uh, for pronouncing my name correctly. Did I say it right? Okay, great. Yeah, Lalo. Yeah, a lot of people say Lalo or some other Lalo. variation. Yeah. Are you? Is there, is there any other like figure or celebrity named Lalo? Or I've never. I don't think I've heard that. The name. only other Lalo that I saw recently from like the entertainment world was I think the music composer to Enter the Dragon was a Lalo. Oh, interesting. That's yeah, that's Bruce the, Lee. That's... Or sorry, that's the Jet Li movie. No, uh, Enter the Dragon with a. Uh, with Bruce Lee. Yeah. Oh, Bruce Lee. Okay. Yeah. If you look in the opening credits there where Bruce Lee there's was walking around, there's a Lalo in there. Yeah. Music but it's composer. not you. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, well, why don't we give people a little bit of your background? I, I initially got into you um, in your Twitter account and that in your podcast, I think by way of the secular jihadists. Um, I okay. think that was the connection. So but why don't you give people maybe where you come from, your background in um, sort of the areas of study that you you've been into uh, over your life sure that it's a lot but i'll try to summarize okay because i can um so i was born in the united states um so i don't speak with an accent um but i live in chile santiago chile uh i moved here when from los angeles with my parents who were both chilean immigrants in 1994 um to chile i didn't speak spanish when i got here and um I went to school here, then I moved back to the United States on my own to study film in UC Santa Barbara, um, where I got my undergraduate. Then I moved to Korea, went to university in Yonsei University in Seoul. Um, I also worked in, um, in Tokyo for a while, also lived in Hong Kong for a little bit, and then came back to Chile um in 2009 where i got my masters in, in uh, international relations hmm. and i got into the online world um at the beginning of 2015 yeah that's when that's i started tweeting time. yeah 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 uh so i was i was brought up without any religion not brought up an atheist just brought up with without religion my parents weren't religious and um I was always interested in uh, in religion, which uh, for an atheist who's been a lifelong atheist, that's kind of rare. I notice everyone in the atheist community comes from a religious background. And I think I come from, because I come from the polar opposite, it's interesting to me because religious people are kind of this weird phenomenon where I didn't really get it. Yeah. Um, especially coming not just from religious parents, but my father's a physicist, my brother's a physicist, my grandfather's a physicist, lots of... Palestinian physicists in my family. So my my father is of Palestinian uh, background, by the mm -hmm. way. Um, and so I got into international politics, wanted to start talking about religion and international relations surrounding religion, especially around Islam. And I started talking on Twitter, did some videos, some podcasts, and uh, did pretty well. Did pretty well, especially considering the short period of time I was doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I, I, there's a lot I, 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 I've been wanting to express through the online world. Uh, besides my ideas, I, I, I think my background is something that I, I would like to put out there. Not, not for an identity politics kind of reason, but just because people are not very aware of the community I come from, which is 
Palestinian community of Chile. So you have, oh, right. uh, you're probably, if I, you know, somebody said they're Palestinian American, that would make a lot of sense to somebody. But if they say they're Palestinian Chilean, that would sound a bit odd. But there's actually more than about three times the size of the Palestinian community in Chile than there is in the United States. Right. It's the largest uh, Palestinian community outside the Middle East, and it's the fourth largest in the world. And right. I mean, even if you looked at other numbers, like the the entire Arab community, not Palestinian, Arab community of all the UK is about 500,000. The right. entire Arab community of uh, Australia is about 500,000. There's about a million Palestinians just in, in Chile. And there's much more than that if you just count all the other Arab community, which is like Lebanese and Syrian mostly. Mm -hmm. And another interesting characteristic of the Palestinian community and the Arab community almost entirely of, of Chile is that practically 0% are Muslim, which They're is Christian. something, a, yeah, Sorry. of Christian background, of Christian okay. background. So they, they, a lot of them was, were Orthodox Christian. A lot of them have converted to Catholicism. Um, but you'll, you'll find some of the biggest Arab, Arab communities in the world, in diaspora, in the world, in Latin America, they're in Venezuela, they're in Argentina, they're in Brazil, like let's say just the Lebanese community, a diaspora, there's like 12 million people just of Lebanese, not Arab, okay. just Lebanese community in Brazil. Right. Right. And that that just way outweighs any other Arab community that you'll find in the United States and or Europe. But how often do you hear about Arabs in Latin America versus like yeah. Arab communities in, in the United States or in Europe? Right? Well, that and then even just Latin, Chile in general, I, which was one of the things I wanted to get into a bit with you is in the mm -hmm. news. You don't hear about it much at all. Um, I, as a Canadian, 30 year old Canadian dude, don't know much about the country. I, I had to do a little bit of reading up and I, I didn't realize that it was so, um, uh, I don't know if you would call it progressive, but as far as economics and all that, it's, it's um, developed very highly Extremely for Latin Extremely developed. That's, a, like, yeah. that's something I got to observe when I moved to, to Chile and saw how the development of the country. Um, and economically, it's been thriving. It's, pro it's the, by far the best economy in all of Latin America, by far. Um, it's, 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 per, it's purpose now for like the country that it's asking itself politically is how to become among like first world countries. Yeah. Um, it's part of a, oh, what's, there's an organization of just like, uh, first world developed countries, which it's a part of, but it still kind of needs to still some kick forward in a lot yeah. of, uh, economic issues, but it's, it's doing very well. We've been. And it's and um, we've been getting a lot of immigration from countries like Venezuela, Colombia, Brazil, which um, I know in the United States and Europe is a very contentious issue, immigration. But for Chile, yeah. which is such a thriving economy, it's actually something that people see very positively because uh, it's a small population. It's a big it's it's not a big country, but considering its population of only 17 million, mm -hmm. it's relatively underpopulated. And so, and, and a lot, and also very interesting uh, aspect that I, I recently heard about is that the average Venezuelan immigrant who has come to Chile in the last uh, three years or so has a higher level of education than the average Chilean, hmm. which, is, which is a very interesting aspect. So there, there's a lot of very educated people from Latin America moving here because they're coming for not necessary labor jobs. Because Venezuela's economy is so bad, people even who studied, like, have a master's in engineering, which I've met, 
can't get a, any kind of decent job yeah. in Venezuela because there's just no jobs. So very right. highly educated people are coming to Chile. So, um, what, so sidebar, what, what is the situation in Venezuela late, as of uh, very late? I know a couple months back I saw some news about uh, how hard uh, things were getting there. But is there any, um, what's the latest update there? Is it still it's, <laughs> turmoil? It's, it's, you know, a lot of people pay attention to Venezuela in the last like couple of years. I've been following what's hap been happening in Venezuela since around 2009. It was one of the, it was one of my focuses when I started studying international relations. I was very interested in Chavez. What's happening in Venezuela did not start two years ago. It didn't start five years ago. It didn't start 10 years ago. It started the day Chavez took over. Sure. And it's been getting progressively worse. There, when he first started off, there's a little bump in the economy, which is typical. If you study any communist country, any at all, doesn't matter which one it is, you'll find that within the first two to four years, the, there's, a, there's a surge in the economy. That's because the, the communist parties take over everything. They yeah. take over the, the industries. They take over the farming lands. They take over uh, res resources of water and electricity and so forth. And so, the, and they redistribute that. So it's like they take wealth, they redistribute it. It's very good for a couple of years. But this is like taking out a bunch of credit cards and saying, I'm rich, <laughs> right? It's like, yes, you are rich for right now. For, for now, right? yeah. Right, but what, what happens in 10 years? Like, what, what are you going to live off of? And the problem is when countries like this take wealth, redistribute it, it's easy to spend wealth. It's difficult to create wealth, which, right. is, what, which is what Chile has done progressively. That's why the economy of Chile has gotten better. It's invested well into industry and development. Now, I know a lot of people on the left will say it's like the problem is not socialism. It, the problem is a uh, U.S. sanction nonsense. The problem is very left wing, not socialism itself, but very, very far left wing socialism, practically communism, really communism. The, 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 even the, the banner over which uh, Chavez was pushing his project of economics was based on Cuba. It's not okay. socialism. It's, it's, hard, it's, it's very, very far left. Straight communism. up communism. Yeah. Straight up communism. And even you know, when you study the, how the economics is working, they're literally like just making even um, uh, income for workers from like janitors to CEOs in, in any company. So it's just right. communism. That's not yeah. how uh, socialist Northern Europe works, right? It's, sure. Th that's, that's a Which are like thing. mixed economies. Is that the correct term to use for right. the Scandinavian? You could you could call it that. It's you know it's leans more towards capitalism really, but then there's a lot of socialist institutions, which you could call like healthcare would be a socialist institution, right? Education yep. would be a socialist institution if it's free, right? Free in the sense that you don't pay for it out of pocket, but you pay through it through taxes. The tax margin of those countries is very high. However, that's what I would the left wing would say it's not so you know it, the problem is not socialism it's an american sanction nonsense it's it's the problem is that their own economic plan is just garbage. Mm -hmm. However, I would say to to the right wing who just tweet, you know, look what socialism built, right? And in Venezuela, they use this as an excuse to say, "Oh, we shouldn't this is why we can't have free healthcare yeah. in in uh, the United States." Yeah. Now, just so you know, Chile, which is the most thriving economy, has a social health, socialist healthcare system, right? right? It has a lot of socialist institutions, 
but it can have that because it focuses on developing capital, right? And it and, it, and it's also been using very wisely its um its natural resources such as copper mines and and, and such. Um, they have lithium. They have lithium, but mostly it's it's really copper mines in in Chile, which uh, which 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 they mine, which is. And also, it, it helps the fact that it's not too rich because the problem in Venezuela is like they're overtly rich from the from the oil, and that causes What's gas too there in Venezuela is like what two cents a liter, or what is it? It's I like actually think that cheap. I actually think that's not the case anymore. There was oh, a okay. time where there was a time where they were just giving away the oil. I heard now that's changed, and because they okay. can't afford it. Uh, okay. Yeah, and also there's a problem that the the oil in Venezuela it's the richest oil country in the world, but it's a very crude kind of oil that requires processing. They don't process it, process it themselves. They sell crude to places like the United States, and then it gets processed. Oh, right? interesting. Okay. So that you can't just put it into a car how they yeah. have it, mm. right? So, um, so what your pin tweet on your Twitter is? Um, some believe 1984 is a problem that can be solved with Animal Farm. So now, full disclosure, I've never read either books. I am familiar with their place in culture and sort of the gist behind them. But could you uh, elaborate on that tweet and? Um, yeah. Why is your pin tweet? So it's my pin tweet because I, I I think it's a really brilliant quote. Pat myself <laughs> on the back. I'm amazing. Uh, <laughs> but I I uh, I made that my pin tweet, and I thought about that what like how to formulate that idea for quite a while before I even tweeted it. But it's because a lot of people look to 1984 as almost being synonymous with fascism, right? I remember there was like a surge in the sales of 1984, the book when uh, Trump became president, yeah. right? Oh, you know, every, everybody kind of sees 1984 in any political party or person they don't like almost. Yeah. And, you know, you can see some truth in like every, there's a little bit of fascism in every kind of political system, right? There's a little imposition on, on people. But I think there's a lot of people on the left in the West who see fascism as a very big problem. They use the word, like the, the mantra and the manifesto of 1984 to express how they feel towards fascism. However, they failed to read Animal Farm by George Orwell, which is a, also a brilliant book. I think it's better, actually, than 1984. Um, and... Animal Farm is, I would consider, like the definitive book to explain why communism doesn't work. And I think a lot of these people who invoke 1984 forget to and 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 and, and, and use 1984 as like a, an example towards how right wing fascism is very dangerous. Forget that the same person wrote a book about how communism is very dangerous. And I think they mm. see like the utopia that some want to create with fascism, and they say, no, the solution is communism. So so you could change the words of my tweet and say, some want to solve, you know, think uh, fascism is a problem that could be solved with communism. And I simply changed the words of these books that explain the dangers of both and said, right. you know, the, the people see the, you know, 1984 as a problem that can be solved with Animal Farm. Right. You know, like, you uh, think not, not all... Uh, not all animals are equal, but all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others kind of thing. Right. OK. <laughs> um, do you think that um, all people that have sort of a communist outlook, per se, 
know that they're that they have a communist outlook does that make sense like do you think some people have certain political leanings and feelings that they're not quite sure maybe they're not educated enough or they don't actually know the repercussions or they don't know um what it actually is that they're saying and believing do you, does that make I any sense i think that would depend on the person but i would i know for a fact there are people who no matter what you put in front of them they are so invested in the belief towards communism there's nothing you could show them to deviate from that belief it's it people sometimes say communism is a religion it's not a religion it's an economic system but there are people who believe in it as profoundly as religion which is different and i and the problem with saying like there's some if you just educated people enough you just showed them what what was the problem with communism they'd they'd understand but the problem is i have seen communists uh political leaders in Chile, for example. And these are not people I call communists. These are people of the Communist Party. You actually don't have an official Communist Party in, Ch- in the United States. We have a Communist Party in Chile. It's not an accusation. This is what they're called. Okay. So, I think in so Canada we have one, though. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we do. Really? <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I, would, I wouldn't be surprised. Right Just, yeah, we do. It's, um, yeah, the Communist Party of it's, Canada. It's a bit bigger in Latin America. It's not so in, in Chile. It's pretty small. It's smaller than you'd find some other places, right. but they're still there. And I know that some of these political leaders or communists ha- make trips to places like Cuba, and they see what's happening in Cuba. Doesn't phase them. They st- mm. they will they say like you know Fidel Castro is the greatest leader. This is when he was alive. They met him. Yeah. Uh, it was is the greatest leader in all of Latin America. An example for all of us to follow. Um, and I really think as much as I have studied a lot of the dangers of religion, studying places like Iran, Saudi Arabia, Syria, even places that are extremely oppressive against people, being a person who has studied places like North Korea, and I've been to the JSA, I've been to the DMZ, I speak Korean, and I've studied a lot about North Korea, and nothing comes close to parallel of the mind control and oppressiveness of North Korea. So I think it even outweighs the dangers of religion in a lot of cases. Maybe that's a good um, jumping off point to jump into North mm-hmm. Korea. I don't know if you watched the video today of Trump um, passing into North Korea. And it's just that's just a show. Nothing's just a show, right? That's kind of my feeling it's on just it too. A from show. both ends though, from 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 both of their it's, So both cases. ends, but who who does it really benefit? Right. What well, how does that benefit the West or the United States. What are we? What are we getting out of it? Yeah, I don't. To, to you know? play devil's advocate with people, yeah. I guess what they're saying is, uh, you know, like you had Elizabeth Warren tweet, you know, this is um, uh, we should not be doing that. We should be doing measured diplomacy in this. And then, then some supporters of Trump will say, look, this is measured diplomacy. It's it's shaking hands. It's uh, I, and I don't. What, yeah, like what what? Yeah. yeah, what is it supposed to uh, accomplish really? Other so than just, the. Uh, I think, again, I think it, even the a lot of people who are anti-North Korea, uh, people on the right wing who maybe don't like North Korea, I really think even those people, very few people understand how terrible and evil North Korea is. I really always get the impression very, very, very few people understand what North Korea is. It's It puts Nazism as almost a joke. They don't come close. 
this is like Nazism and Hitler is the boogeyman of of Hollywood that you know every every movie like you know oh the Nazis are coming the Nazis are coming it 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 doesn't there was there's literally you could look this up if you googled it there was a North Korean uh, refugee who was in concentration camp and who was giving a testimony to some uh, international uh, court and the judge who was hearing his testimony was a Jewish Holocaust survivor, okay? Jewish Holocaust survivor. After hearing this testimony of this North Korean escapee from a concentration camp, the Jewish Holocaust survivor judge said, what hap what's happening in this camp sounds worse than anything that I, that I experienced in the Holocaust. And when you're dealing with a country like that, you can't just play patty cake you can't just like show up on the border and say like, oh, we're shaking hands. Let, let, let. The, the problem with the diplomacy that Trump is showing is the kind of diplomacy you would want for two countries that have a history of antagonism. But essentially, that's all that's wrong. All that's wrong between the two is like you and me don't get along. Like Japan have you ever had, or something. Have you ever had a fight with a friend and mm -hmm. the only problem between you two is the fight? Like you just got to shake hands and it'll be done. Right. Right. In situations like that, I understand, like, yeah, it'd be good if the, you know, the United States just went, just shake hands, get over that fight, that old beef you had. There's countries like this, for example, I could, I could give you an example, Korea, Japan. Okay. Korea, Japan have a lot of antagonism between each other, a lot of hatred. I experienced yeah. it, my, like, I saw it myself when I was living in these countries, how, you know, the racism between them, the contentious history. Japan colonized Korea. They were very oppressive. Um, they had enslavement camps. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, they, there were islands where literally just rape camps of uh, what were called comfort women, um, where they just had Korean women there for soldiers to come and just rape. That's mm -hmm. the, the, and so, and this is in recent history. There are people alive who remember this, right? This is the 1900s? Like 1920s, yeah. 1930s, that mm -hmm. they, they were colonized there. Um, that like there's nothing happening between them now like right. that this is right. history this right. is, and they have and there's a lot of times where they have opened the door shook in hands and say like we need to establish better relations great that's not the case of north korea mm -hmm. it's not just a beef these people like north korea has the worst concentration camps right now in the world the worst oppression of people. The, like in you and I've posted this in the past. You look at every single metric of freedom in the world, no matter what it is: access to information, access access to books, access to the internet, um, freedom of journalism, freedom of expression. Literally, like the, the they rank number one on slavery in the world. Yeah, number one. This is the most evil country. Not, and I would say not just in the world, but in history, in history, should we be shaking their hand with nothing to show for it? Right. So I ask, okay, Trump goes to the border and he shakes Kim Jong-un's hand. Why? Yeah. Answer me that. Why? Well, well, it's to improve relations. Why should you improve relations? Mm. Why? Why do you want to have good relations with a country like that? Yeah. What is it? What I, are, who's getting any? Are we getting anything out of this? Are the Korean people getting any, anything out of this? Because 
And another thing, let, let, me, let me teach you something I've learned from international politics and history. Yeah. We in the West praise democracy. We love it. We think it's the best form of government we have ever found. And you know what's true? It is. It's nice that we, we can control the power individuals have over us, right? You can, in the United States, for example, you can be president for four years. You can be president for another four years, maybe if we vote for you, but then that's it. You're president for eight years, then you're done because we don't want you to take too much control over our lives. We don't want you to take too much power, right? Checks and balances, as they love to say, right? Great. Division of powers. Dictatorships, though, they have an advantage. And it's not just the power they have over their people. There's actually a logical advantage that we miss out on in the West. A good advantage. And that's wisdom of leadership that they have. Because a dictator is a dictator for life. And then his son is a dictator. And they right. have the experience yes. of a lifetime of leadership and dealing with other people. North Korea, remember Kim Jong-un? Is his father Kim Jong Il, his father, you know Kim Il Sung, they and all the generals uh, around them, they have been leaders forever. Forever, yeah. Forever. forever. Trump has been a leader for a year. He was never yeah. in politics before. He didn't know anything about history. He didn't know anything about North Korea. Right. Kim Jong Un was trained and studied from the day of birth to be a leader. He has right. people around him who have since you know they were children. They have been leaders. They know how to. They were. They know exactly how to toy with international politics. We sure. think this is a something that I have learned that very few people understand. North Koreans are not stupid. We look at them, we laugh because they make all these outlandish state statements and nonsense. They know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly you, between like the, the master of of diplomacy and negotiation between Kim Jong Un and Trump. Yeah. Trust me, Trump has gotten nothing on the North Koreans. Korean, North Koreans know exactly what they're doing. And they know that they know like Trump wants to be popular. He's up for re-elections. Kim Jong-un is not up for re-elections anytime yeah. soon. Right. right? There's no, there is no re-elections for him. For them, it's, they, they don't need the legitimacy of their own country. What, is that what they need? They don't care. They need the legitimacy of who? The world's foreign leaders. They want to be integrated into the into the world uh, yeah. politics without right. giving anything. They don't want to get anything up. They want to keep all the control, all the oppression, all their nuclear weapons. In fact, they want to grow their nuclear armament, but they want to do commerce, do everything, but just be a horrible country. Hmm. And that's and, and Trump is giving it to them. Right. Great. So, it's so like, so explain to me. What is the upside for for the West there? What is the upside for? The, uh, is there any upside other than for the government of North Korea for this? Right. I don't right. see it. Like, it le and look, I, it could be, it could be that Trump, if he's some kind of brilliant strategist, is gonna take a step afterwards after all this to actually ask for something tangible, real that's important, which would either be an improvement on on human rights in North Korea. Or a reduction in their nuclear armament, great. If that happens, great. I don't see it happening because the North Koreans are just too smart at this. They know how to play play this game. They know that Trump is just up for re-elections. You know, like there's already debates going on. They know that. They know, like, you know, this guy wants something. What does he want? What can we give him? Oh, he wants to play the the, the hero. He wants his Nobel Prize prize that the Obama got. Okay, let's 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 make him look like he solved us. 
Yeah. Right. As the Trump fans say, he solved the North Korean problem. What did he solve? Total mystery. But he saw he shook his hand. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. Right. OK. And then what, what can we get out of that situation? Yeah, no, I totally agree. Makes sense. And I think it all fits into the uh, Trump narcissism kind of um, thing that's for me. um, You know, I'm a bit of a centrist and I have a close friend that's a big uh, Trump supporter, more like nominally than anything else. Like he just thinks it's fun to kind of, you know, support him. And I I don't I see the same thing that you were describing, just um, a lot of show for every every on on principle. I hate all politicians on principle. I support nobody. You know, I, there's some I people I hate that. less than others, but I, I, to me, this whole new uh, kind of uh, dynamic from the public of actually treating politicians like superstars who they love, yeah, I think is yeah. very bizarre. I come from the ni- 90s, right? When I was a teenager, we hated all politicians on principle, right? Like George Carlin, you know, yep. like, oh, you all suck. You're all corrupt. You're all liars. Yes. And I've never and I've never seen anything to counter that belief. They, Yeah, yeah. they are all liars. They're all corrupt. Except we for, the, well, yeah, check. they're all crooks except for the one that we support because they're going to come in and change. So don't support you know. any of them, right? Yeah. Just support some less than others. That's my philosophy. Um, maybe we can jump to a little bit of the Democratic debate stuff. And speaking of concentration camps, uh, what are your thoughts and feelings on the rhetoric now about the um, detention centers or concentration camps um, in the U.S. for the illegal immigrants uh, coming over? Do you see that as just a lot of rhetoric or what are the real issues there that could be could be solved and such? Yeah, you're asking me a lot of stuff about recent yeah. American politics and I've been <laughs> really out of it. Uh, I didn't see the debates. I, I've been uh, I've been concentrating a lot on other issues that I'm studying. For example, right now I'm studying... Uh, islamic communities in latin america okay so I, i've kind of moved away from uh, american politics uh especially national politics yeah. and moved more into international uh politics especially around uh islam so what about more generally then like just on immigration um from latin america to the u.s like one question i thought of earlier but i'm not sure if it's an ignorant question is why don't some uh, people migrate to other latin american countries is that just more oh, difficult even oh they okay they so yeah, like sure. what's with what's with people just crossing the rio like there's this um uh again very very recent but there's um el salvador man and his daughter there's a photo of them uh drowned in the in the rio uh and somebody a canadian cartoonist just got fired um for doing a depiction of trump sort of playing golf over them or something like you know he doesn't he doesn't care mm. about immigrants uh, that sentiment and um it does make you think like there what are these people escaping you know obviously the narco stuff and just the general violence down there but it, me not knowing much about latin america i think like so they do you said they do um migrate to to other latin well, american countries as well i mean even when you say latin america i mean you're talking about central america okay right Mo- mostly um i mean the main countries that people from venezuela are moving to is colombia then peru and chile so there's a lot of inter uh latino migration um i mean i every day i see more people coming from haiti venezuela colombia brazil argentina Uh, argentina's economy is also horrendous by the way um but in the united states I, i think the problem is there seems to be a growing sense of absolutism in people's point of view yeah and it seems like there's this growing uh belief that if you believe in something, there's no exceptions to the rule either. Yeah. Like now on immigration, 
now there's talk of what like I didn't it wasn't up until like I think two or three years ago I'd even heard the term open borders. Yeah. Where there's just free flow of people. That's it. And on on immediately, that's not that it sounds like a, an absurd joke to me as a person who studies international policy. That would never work anywhere. What are you talking about? Yeah. Right? Like there's no borders. There's I no think that's, control. A, that's generally used as an attack against uh, Democrats from the right. And I think right. most Democrats say, hey, no Democrat says that. They just compare their policy well, wishes. To yeah, open. I even hear a lot of kind of, you know, center left and even center right Republicans and Democrats. Talking more moderately that they believe in immigration, but kind of legal immigration. Um, but I think the public is getting very absolutist. Right. And especially and especially thanks to social media, it's the craziest voices that get put forward. Nobody wants to talk to a person who's very moderate about their beliefs mm -hmm. on social media. You only you only get somewhere by being very crazy and very, mm -hmm. uh, you know, fringe. So. There's not much more I could say on the problem of immigration other than, you know, I, I agree with that. I think there's you know you, you could you can have a very moderate level of immigration. Uh, and I believe in illegal immigration. As far as the the ICE and those uh, those detention centers, yeah, I I would say it sounds like from what I've read that those detention centers have had a lot of those problems for a lot longer than Trump has been president. Yeah, and it seems like kind of uh, you know as a person who doesn't even like Trump at all, I find that to be very. Uh, very hypocritical from the left when they start talking about a problem being a problem when Republicans start doing it. And I don't think that's a good thing. For example, I remember when Trump became president, suddenly all the Democrats started saying we need to eliminate the ele electoral college because yeah, he had because not it didn't won. Help uh, yeah, because they had not won the popular vote. But I was, wait, you, you're only saying this now because you lost. That's yeah, not a reason yeah. to change a system. Right. You right. can want to change the system, but you can't be just because you lost the, the flipping of the coin. Yeah. Right. So I that's find similar here in Canada. Happened. We yeah. people are upset with the um, the voting system. Like there should be a proportional representation. But um, there's certain um, political commentators that I've listened. I used to be for that as well. And then I've listened to people explain it a certain way that, you know, no, there, there is reasons behind um, current systems. You know, just because it didn't help you or. You know, that kind of thing is not a great reason to abolish a, a system. There's usually some underlying um, reasons for, for having something like that. Can, can I, I'll tell you one thing, like I think about the, the current Democratic debates, which I, I didn't watch the debate, but I, I made a comment to a friend that they thought was funny. And I'm, I made it I made it probably more than half seriously, is that I really hope somebody like Joe Biden wins because I'd be so happy to go back to straight white old guy is total establishment becoming president again yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. compared to what we, there is now like establishment from like crusty old white men sounds amazing sounds like <laughs> let's go back like we we need to go back to just the middle at this point because yes. we are so far away from like going really over the top progressive that like establishment sounds like a, a step forward at this point Oh man. Okay. So, um, well, now that you mentioned um, Islamic communities in, um, did you say uh, South American countries or just other? For now, I'm studying them in in South America. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, we can jump into that a little bit. It's interesting, you know, just to give people more of an idea of like uh, why I enjoy your tweets so much. You you had this one tweet uh, recently that was something about um, 
uh, Western or, or white people stealing things. And you had something about the Kaaba that uh, that 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 actually might have been stolen. And the can Kaaba. you, um, yeah. yeah, what is the story behind that being a stolen um, yeah. object? Well, well, you know, as a person who's very critical of religion, I, I do think it's very important to study what you you're critical of. And I'm very critical of Islam, but I do enjoy reading about it. It's very fascinating. So the Kaaba, which is the holiest site for Islam. Is it the holiest? It is the holiest site, I think. In Mecca? Uh, is that where it is? Or? It is in Mecca, yeah, yeah um, where people go for Hajj. And the Kaaba itself is kind of a house structure underneath this, this black veil. Um, it's believed it was the home of... Old Testament biblical figures, because um, a lot of the early uh, Old Testament mythology is part of Islam. But the Kaaba was not built by Muhammad and his followers. It existed prior to that, and they appropriated it. It was the the Kaaba was a place where pilgrims migrated of many different religions and it contained objects of very of various religions so it was a pilgrimage point for them and this the mecca itself was a very kind of commercial lucrative place because you would get pilgrimage right you would get people who would come and pay and trade it's like basically like white tourist place touristy places you know get money right same mm -hmm. same principle but it was when it was appropriated by islam the kind of the story behind it changed they said no this was the 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 home of Abraham, and um, so it was, it was literally appropriated due to Muslim Arab colonialism. You could, you could, if you want to oh, say okay. imperialism or whatever you want to say, right? But uh, and this is very well known. This is this is in books that I've read on Islam from Islamic scholars and everything. It's not they, all Muslims know this. Okay. They've studied. And um, so, what what was in my tweet? Somebody was talking about. Like colonialism appropriating something? Yeah, something. I don't know what the specific example was, but yeah, yeah. something about that. So, but I, I thought, I believe the person who tweeted it was Muslim. And then, and then I made the point that, well, you know, there's there's a lot of appropriation of property and goods when it comes to, you know, historical colonialism and, and imperialism. Yeah. For example, the Kaaba. And I said, like, is are Muslims going to, willing to give this up? <laughs> <laughs> you know, to considering give back, that, yeah, right, right. Give, give it back to to its original owners or something. You know, it's yeah. it's kind of a it's an absurd thing kind of to do at this point in history. And I think the, the in the example, it was so far back in history that they were talking about centuries back, kind of colonialism. That if we're talking about giving back, you know, property or objects or whatever, historically. You know, are Muslims going to give up the 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 territory and the objects that has been appropriated? Sure, due yeah, to, yeah, exactly. And and of course, then they kind of you know, it's no, 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 just you know, just the white people. <laughs> you yeah, got to give yeah. everything back. Uh, right. Another random point uh, about race and religion. Um, um, not only yourself has brought this up; it's it's obviously also a known fact. But the fact that more um, there's more Asian Muslims than there are um, Arab Muslims, for example, just a random. Um, numbers thing the that a lot of people number? is it is it is it more asian than see i, think I don't know so. I, I i don't know if that's exactly true you might be right because what i what you might be referring to is that the most populated countries are mostly asian for example uh indonesia, like indonesia in, yeah india pakistan 
um, are the, are some of the most populated countries of Muslims. I don't know if okay. all of them together. That, okay, I don't know if all sense. of them together actually counter the amount of Muslims you'll find all across MENA, Middle East and Northern Africa. Okay. So I don't know if all those countries together, the sum of them, is still less than Asia. But it it, it is there is a typical reference that you know it's the most populated countries in the world of Muslims are not in the Middle East, they're in Asia. Right, right. like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Indonesia. Yeah. These, yeah. yeah. Okay. India is among the top, for example, which is something that kind of throws people off. And that's just right. sheer numbers, but yeah, but it's just an interesting fact. Without, without looking at your computer, how many Muslim-majority countries in the world are there? How many Muslim-majority countries? How many Muslim-majority countries are there in the world? In the world? So how many countries total? Are there 300 and something? There is, there is about 192 some countries about. Uh, Okay. I was thinking of bones in the body or something. <laughs> um, there's got to be there's got to be at least 50. You're really close, 53. Almost everybody says wow. around like 16 or something. Oh, I, yeah, I'm pretty good. You got you got really cool. You're the only person that got that close actually. And I swear good. I did not google that. I good, that's good. A lot of people undercut how many Muslim majority countries there are. Yeah. And that's not counting the Muslim minority communities in, around the world. There's a lot of Muslim majority. They make up a quarter of all the countries in the world. Um, and it's an, I think I always I consider that a very important factor when talking about Islam, because there is such a plethora of cultures and nationalities and languages that when people just start talking about like Muslims in Europe, right, it's it's. And just say there's a problem with Muslims and there's a problem with their culture and et cetera, yes. et cetera. It's like, yes. well, you got to be more specific than that. For sure. Um, and I, I find, for example, one of the main topics uh, uh, people talk about Islam in Europe is the UK, for example. Yep. Now, to just talk about that there's a problem with Muslims in the UK is very misleading and very ignorant thing to say because almost the entire Muslim population of the UK is divided between mostly Pakistanis and Bangladeshis. Arabs from any nationality make less than 7% of okay, all of, yeah. of, of Muslims, not the country, of just among Muslims, only like of, among them, se less than 7% is Arab. Now, so right. they're, only, they're only from a few, like a couple countries, Pakistan and Bangladesh, and that's Asian, right? They're like essentially Indian ethnically, right? Desi, what it's called. Mm -hmm. Now, when people say, oh, well, we're having a problem of Muslim migration, you are not going to have the same cultural problems from if you got 5 million Moroccans than 5 million Pakistanis. Right. Way over half of, of Pakistan is illiterate. Very poor country. You don't, you're not hearing on the news from around the world, really hardcore terrorism happening from Moroccan terrorists. Mm -hmm. Very rarely you're gonna find in the United States of all the terrorist uh, attacks from Muslims are gonna be Iranian, young Iranians. Very rarely, There's, you might be able to find a couple. A couple of hijackers were from Morocco, no? Or one of them? I think one of them from 9-11 was from Morocco. Could be, could yeah. be, but it's uh, like, it, you know, I'm not saying Just it's impossible. <laughs> I'm just saying it's rare. I'm yes. saying there's more, there's some countries that's going to be more predominant than others. Yeah. Right. And there are cultural reasons there. There's uh, economic reasons. 
And these are people who are very different. Um, for example, when you're talking about Pakistan, they don't speak Arabic. It's not even if you look, yes. if you went to the to the Wikipedia page of, pa of Pakistan and yeah. you saw languages, you would see Urdu and, you know, every following language under that. Arabic is on the list. It wouldn't make eighth on their list. Mm -hmm. That's a very big difference when you have people practicing a religion. They can't read the holy book. They can't understand what, what the religion is about versus another culture. These are very big factors. And Pakistan does have a very different culture from let's say saudi arabia or syria right um these, these so these are these are things you cannot take out of account um so anytime anybody yeah. mentions uh, muslims in general you're not being specific enough essentially depending on the context of the conversation let's like say we were talking about uh we were talking about uh, a subject and i started saying well, there's a lot of problems with Christians in my country. And you ask me, oh, really? What's the problem? Well, these Christians, they keep talking about Joseph Smith. And, you know, they, 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 and then I keep describing how these people who follow Joseph Smith and, and their practices yeah. and how they're wearing this mag magic underwear. These Christians, they come here and they're talking about Joseph Smith. They're wearing, I have, there's a big problem with Christians. You, you would probably tell me, you should probably more, be more specific to Mormons. Right. You would probably say that to me, right? Mm -hmm. And you would you would think that that's a very important distinction to make. It's you're not having a problem with Catholics, <laughs> obviously, yeah. or Anglicans. You're having a very specific problem to Mormons. So this th that dynamic of the importance you would give to you're talking about Mormons, people don't do that with Islam. I find that very negative. And when I say that people don't do this, this would be something that I even find that is not being done on podcast as big as even Sam Harris's podcast. I would encourage, you know, as a fan of Sam Harris. Sure. But I think I think he is uh, he does have his faults when he's talking about the subject and I think you can't he isolates a lot of the problems of Islam to the theology, what it mm -hmm. says in the Quran. You right. can do that. You can you can open a Quran and say let's read this and analyze what it says. That's I do that. That's an interesting thing to do. But then he goes into terrorism and the effects of these communities and what's going on. Yeah. Then you got to be like, okay, where are they from? Where are they predominantly from? What what brand are they of uh, of uh, Muslim? It's different to talk if they're Sufis or or Shia or or Ahmadis or you know. If right. I said like he, it, it's different to say you know this community is Muslim versus this community is Pakistani Deobandi. Do you know what that means, right? Do you know what what that implies? Um, if I said Ahmadi, uh, the Ahmadi community in Pakistan is an offshoot sect of Islam that was only created a little over a century ago. It's, mm. it, it, a lot of people actually compare it to, to Mormonism because it's a recent kind of variation on the religion. And it, they have their own prophet in Ahmadi Islam, their own prophet of, okay, of that so, time, like yeah. Joseph Smith. And his name is, is Joseph Smith, coincidentally. And <laughs> and Muslims don't consider the Ahmadi to be real Muslims, just like Christians don't yes. consider Mormons to be Christians. Right. So, th and so when we just say Muslim, I I think that's not really doing justice uh, to the conversation because this is a very big issue. And you, yeah. if you're just saying Muslim, then you're you're throwing all these poor Moroccans and Iranians and yes. and Tunisians into the mix, and they're like, "What the hell did I do?" <laughs> <laughs> um, was it uh, was this true that uh, the sentiment you always hear about George Bush? Um, uh, going into Iraq, that he really didn't know the difference between Sunni and Shia, and that kind of thing. And then, is that like a like you? It just seems like you would figure that out before you went over there. You know I mean, what I he mean? might have. 
so so he might have gotten a crash course right before yeah. like on the plane right <laughs> the, the 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 problem is like I, I don't know much more that you would really need to understand is like these are two sects of islam and they hate each other like <laughs> like the theology the deep theology there is not something he really needs to understand right. um but i mean the, the problem is is that the middle east look you get to like it's say you got to iraq and even like let's say i understand the difference between sunni and shia it doesn't matter. You get there and every tribe has their own kind of little variation on Islam. The tribalism, the area, when they introduce themselves, I'm, you know, Ahmed from this area, from this tribe, from this religion. It's not just Sunni and Shia, but that's a division. But there's also millions of subdivisions. Y you wouldn't be able to learn that, right? right. I, 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 don't, I don't even pretend to even try to learn that. Tribalism in the Middle East is so over the top still. It, I mean, we had this kind of tribalism in, in the West at some point. They're still very much retrograde in the past. And we want the whole world to kind of come to the point where the West is, like the developed First World War. Not everyone is there. And it, that takes some patience. But I think the, the, the most important aspect is the improvement of education and literacy and access to information. I think actually the 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 most important thing to actually improve the world it, like in all this talk about reforming islam is total it, nonsense just mm -hmm. chuck that out the window it doesn't matter improve people's economic situation and their access to information i think you're you're gonna the best way to reform any underdeveloped oppressive society help them watch movies mm-hmm Honestly, a movie can is going to change the world. Before well, it's like you in, try to... no, in Korea, they they don't they sneak over films like cassettes and stuff um, over the border, and some North Koreans end up watching some. I could tell you, I, I love to read bi biographies. I could tell you people, for example, Yeonmi Park, who was an escape who, who was an escape refugee from North Korea. One of the way, one of the things that inspired her of going to the West was watching a pirated version of Titanic, yeah. right? And watching a pirated version of Titanic in your home in North Korea could literally be a, like a jail sentence yeah. to a concentration camp with your whole family, your your brothers, your your grandfather, and on the risk of watching that movie. And they do it all together. It's just it's just worth it for them. And I can tell you another story. For example, um, uh, Manal Al Sharif, a woman from Saudi Arabia, she one of the she was very fundamentalist in her practice of Sunni Islam. And one of the things that opened her up to the entire West and the whole world out there was listening to the song from InSync, Tell Me the Tell Me the Reason of Being Lonely. Yeah. And yeah. she goes on about it, you know, it was like, what is this? An explosion. A song to us that would mean nothing. We laugh yes. at, you know, it's like, it, what does that song mean to me? It means nothing. To her, it was literally the world opening up to her. A song as as like that. So you want to change the world, it's sometimes as simple as creating access to things like YouTube, you know, books, movies, television shows, those kind of, I mean, one, one of the big things that uh, South Koreans do to help reform the mentality in North Korea is to send uh, DVDs or VHSs, now maybe UC, uh, USB drives with uh, Korean dramas television dramas to to the country so they see how people live they see you know how how they love and how they they interact with uh, in politics and and you know their way of their style of life and things like that that that's what changes people
Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Um, can we jump to um, this comparison you hear these days with um, between white supremacy and the violence surrounding that and then Islamic terrorism? Why is there this, um, you know, sort of battle between these two seemingly and comparing them all the time or, or one-upping each other? Like, aren't they both problems that should be worked on? And Yeah, it's very sad to see that actually people only care about the supremacy of the of of the other of the other yeah. side um it, it that's something that i'm i'm a person who really despises obviously as much as anybody else could white supremacy or the kkk or a nazi yeah. of course but there's something kind of extra distasteful and bugs me even a little bit deeper that uh, from a well-meaning liberal white person who, who kind of praises fascist, sexist, patriarchal, religious ideologies because they come from brown people. Right. Right. They romanticize it and they excuse it. And, then, and they almost say, like, you'd be better off with it. <laughs> that, that has a little extra touch of disgust for me. You know, it's like it's like, you know, I'm 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 a liberal feminist, progressive, social justice, blah, 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 blah. But Islam is love. Islam is peace. It's the most feminist religion in the world. Yeah. Right. That That's it for a person who. On mo like, I, I don't really consider myself any part of any political party, but I would say mostly I'm liberal on social issues. Very yeah. few issues I would I could identify as not being very liberal. There's a couple. Mostly, I, I don't care about what other people do with their lives, right? Homosexuality or sure. women's so more rights. more of a liber libertarian slant or a little bit? No. Li see, libertarianism is a very American ideal. Um, okay. From what I understand, like the, the example I always go to with libertarianism is that uh, Republicans are against gay marriage. Liberals are in favor of gay marriage. A libertarian thinks that marriage shouldn't even involve the government at all <laughs> okay right like there should yeah. be no it shouldn't even be registered under their venue right sure. that's the libertarian i don't see and that's where i actually say no i'm not a libertarian i actually think uh, like the marriage contract and the protections that come where like sure th there's the yeah. protection of the wife there's the protection of the children and things or like, like that, driver's licenses like, stuff like that i yeah i actually think like the government involvement is actually a kind of okay to a degree so i'm not a libertarian actually but on principle myself i don't really care what people do with their lives right? And, right and also i don't care what i don't want people getting involved in my life um where was i going with this what was i talking about uh we were talking about white supremacy and islamic terrorism ah, so, and romanticizing so, yeah right so i when i see the these uh liberal well-meaning people romanticize islam especially as a person from Palestinian background who's not Muslim and, and also not just Muslim and, and not believing in Islam, but I see the dangers as clearly as I see in Christianity, the Catholic Church, uh, Scientology, Mormonism, Evangelical Christianity, you know, uh, Hasidic Judaism, the oppressive nature of all fundamentalist religion. I see it as just as clearly in Islam. And when I see that these liberal people are, they understand very clearly. If I said to them, Mormonism, they're like, oh, Mormonism, crazies, nuts, wearing, you know, magic underwear, very oppressive religion, evangelical Christianity, George Bush, 
Michelle Bachman, oh, crazy people, nuts. Scientology, oh, I love the the TV show from Leah Remedy. Oh my God, these people, they're so they're such harassers. It's it's awful. Islam, oh, the, you know, poor Muslim. Yeah, no, no, it's it's great. It's a feminist religion. You know, we need. I I'm going to put on a hijab, you know, to support my my Muslims. It's like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And all I ask, all I would ask these people, is just hold the same standard. If you're gonna be against all these other religions in their in their fundamentalist form, be against Islam. If you're gonna tell me like you're gonna support, like if they're gonna tell me women who wear hijab, I'm not for against that. I just say it's their choice. Okay, then apply that same rule to every other religion because I don't see you doing that. I don't see I don't see a Sports Illustrated issue with an Amish woman, uh, Orthodox Jewish woman. You know, a, a a Mormon woman, you know, who dresses modestly. There's no celebration of that. There's no support of that. They wouldn't support it. So is it not pandering? Is it just general pandering from um, when Nike does it or when like we have local politicians here that do it? Um, I don't know, think it's city. pandering because I, I don't I don't see why a lot of the like it might be pandering from a politician. It might be pandering from a company who wants to sell products that could be pandering. But the the public, right, the individual you know, 18-year-old girl in her room who's just, you know, watching this stuff. She's not pandering. What is mm. she doing? I think it's just confusion on their part. Sure. I think that I think that there's a real misunderstanding that Islam is not a race. We say that all the time, but I think people actually believe that. And, I, and I'll tell you this. I don't think it's just the left who believes that. I think that even I see right-wingers on Twitter and YouTube saying Islam is not a race and then treat it like a race. Uh, right? That and, and, yeah. and so even you say, oh, I can criticize Islam. It's not a race. But then they say Arab culture is a problem. because, And then they point to Islam. Okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You just said it's not a race. You just you just distinguished it as, a, as specifically a religious practice. But then you're just, but then you're talking about Arabs and Arab culture. Ar- Arabs and who, pra- who have Arab culture, who are Christian, are not doing the things you're talking about. Just like we talked, to, if we talked about Christian, uh, you know, crazy evangelical Christians in the United States, I wouldn't just say like, oh, American culture, right? It's not yeah. the culture of everyone. It's not particular to white people by any means. So I think even on the case of people from the right who say Islam is not a race, they are doing it too. Um, I think it's worse with the left. I think that they think that being Muslim is synonymous with being from a lot of these countries in the Middle East. Mm. And I think they, they are abandoning a lot of people who are fighting for their rights. Feminists, religious minorities, racial minorities, who live under a very oppressive theocracy. Doesn't even have to necessarily be a theocracy. It can be just individual communities. And they are totally abandoned by feminist, liberal, progressive movements in the United States. And I know that for an absolute fact. Because I have interviewed people like Masi Alinejad, who's an extremely famous Iranian feminist activist who fights for women to not be obligated to wear the hijab in Iran. Mm-hmm. She wrote a book recently, The Wind in My Hair. I interviewed her. She won a Women's Rights Award from the United Nations. Very important person. And I asked her directly, do you get support from feminists? No. They don't. So don't. So I don't want people telling me that, like, oh, no, we, we support the, fa- the, 
the Muslim feminists too. No, you don't. I know for a fact. I've asked them. Right. I look because I look for these people. I go out of my way to find people like Manal Al Sharif, right? Who I've spoken to, who who uh, wrote the the book Daring to Drive. She was one of the main activists to get the right to drive in Saudi Arabia, right? right? I've talked with Daria Safai, who runs the campaign Let Iranian Women Into Their Stadiums because women in Iran can't enter their stadiums. I know these people. I've spoken with these people. I've recorded some of these on my podcast. I, you know, they tell me they're not getting the support. Don't tell me they are. They're not. It's very right. sad that that these feminists in the West, they don't support Muslim women. They support the most fundamentalist, crazy Muslim women they can find. They ignore the ones who are not wearing a hijab, who are saying we're feminists. They're wearing, they're looking for the most practicing, the most covered, the ones who are talking about the most modesty, patriarchal culture of Islam. Those are the ones they look for and praise and hold their hands and say, we love you. The more crazy and fundamentalist, the better for them. It's the polar opposite of what they do with any other religion. It infuriates me. And I, and there's, and I don't know what to do about it. Because it's not like <laughs> I just tell every person. To explain this in a society where Islam is practically void is a very hard thing to do. Right. You, you mean void in America or? Most places. I mean, I mean, really, how many? Like, there's, you know, there's not even that many Muslims in, in the UK or even in Europe, depending on where you are. It's not a huge part of the population. So you mean it's so the perception is that there's more than there actually is. In, and the it's the problem is the from the perception is that you, you can't actually interact with a Muslim in the United States, right? Um, there was some study that that, that a lot of uh, people were pointing to, a lot of Muslim apologists were pointing to that the average American, a uh, very tiny percentage that had actually interacted with a Muslim, and they right. used this to point to racism. That's oh, not right. racist. That's because there are no Muslims. There's nowhere in the to United be. <laughs> They're just not there. Yeah. What are you talking about? There's there's less than one percent of the population, and most of that one percent lives in like Dearborn, Michigan, or is a very particular. Yeah, place. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 not. It's like you you fault them for not interacting with Muslims. They have no opportunity to, right? So, yeah, that's interesting. But that speaks to the um, uh, the whole Nike hijab thing and it's how much it's mentioned in that kind of thing is um, it's mm. some sort of, um, yeah, it's a misrepresentation of the reality on the ground. It's, it's you know, it's even speaking about like um, uh, trans people, for example, or any of these mm. uh, small minorities that um, we put so much uh, emphasis on, but it's really a very small percentage of the population. I'm not yeah. saying that the problems that exist are not real and need to be addressed kind of thing, but uh, sometimes yeah, you think, think there's more gotta, than there are. I got to I got to add though that I don't uh, the left seems to be ignoring the problems of of Islam and and minorities and women. The right wing doesn't ignore it. They talk about it a lot, but I don't actually think they care about these populations. I think uh -huh. they only use these problems to say this is why we shouldn't let these people in. Yes. You know, they they talk about um, gay people being killed. They talk about women being beaten or acid thrown in their faces. I don't think right. they actually care about these groups. I think they just use these stories to say, see, this, I don't want this in my country. And I know that because I see that every day on Twitter and social media. When I post these stories because I care about these populations and, and I want to see these populations improve in, in their human rights, the comments I get look a lot like from, you know, People who say like have Britain first on their 
on their uh, on their profile or Trump or something, and then they say, "I don't want this in my country." More than they have sympathy for the actual people. And also, I've spoken with people. For example, I spoke um, with a kid named Mohad. I can't remember his name, but he was from Kenya. He was an immigrant from Kenya to the United States. He was he is homosexual. His parents took him to Kenya for to visit family, and they put him into a place where they do conversion therapy for gay mm-hmm. people. He escaped. He went back to the U.S. He got a, a freed um, legally from his parents as an independent individual. Um, and I interviewed him, and he said, you know, I got a lot of interviews asking me to be on Breitbart, Infowars, whatever, some right-wing uh, shows. He got no invitations to any left-wing shows. Mm-hmm. So the left-wing norm because he's not a beneficial story to them. He doesn't fit the narrative. Yeah. The right wing wanted to interview him, and he has. And he said, "I don't. I wouldn't do it." I. He said, I, "I. am not going to go on these shows because he knows he's. They're just going to use his story to say this is why we shouldn't have people come to our country from there." But he's an immigrant from Africa. The United States going to the United States saved his life, so he can't do that. So he's a, he's a, between a rock and a hard place. The left wing yeah. who wants he wants to talk to you don't care about him, ignore him, which is disgusting. And then the other people just want to use him. To, mm. to to push us to push a narrative where they wouldn't let him into the country to begin with right right so what what does he do he well he, he can't do anything he talks to me some some nobody with a small <laughs> podcast right yeah, yeah. like i don't have a lot of listeners i wish i could get this kid on a big platform but which yeah. big platform the big left ones don't want to talk to him the big right ones just want to use him so I like I don't I don't know the solution to these problems. It's it's too big for me. To, to well, I, you say yeah. it almost like with some humor, but I do think the podcast world is where a lot of these important conversations are yeah. happening, and even with the small yeah. ones, because like you've been on Ruben, um, and Dave Ruben has you know been on Rogan, and the, so there's connections between all these shows where the totally. ideas could definitely spread. Yeah. Uh, even yeah. yeah, like even if it's a small podcast, I think for sure. And I think uh, a lot of these small podcasting in the future is gonna. Hopefully make things a bit better and uh, improve understanding. Hopefully what podcast will do, which I don't think it's there yet, is that it's created these bubbles where people just live in echo chambers. But I, my hope is that, you know, everything is, is a fashion, right? Every, fashions go, come and go. And I, and I think at some point it will become fashionable to talk with people from across the, the table and come to better understandings. Because Hopefully, I think like yeah. the echo chambers will just fade out from just being boring. I I really think that just a lot of things like a lot of extremism dies because it just gets dull. Yep. Yeah. Uh, speaking of all this confusion and um, um, narratives and such, what do you think about the concept of um, selective empathy? Um, just basically with news stories um, like what's going on in Sudan right now, for example, or um, you know, when the Paris attacks happened, um, sort of the level of empathy that people have in these short, uh, bursts of time, um, that then, you know, other stories get forgotten and that kind of thing. Do you have any thoughts on that? A lot of people try to interpret that as being racist. It's not racism. It's just, it's just what we're familiar with. You know, it's, um, it's knowing what a, what a country is like, its language, its history. I'm not surprised if, you know, people hear a story from, from South Korea and be like, you know, it's nothing to me, but I've lived there and I have friends there. You know, yeah. if there, if there's threats of a nuclear strike in South Korea, I'm, I'm thinking about my friends there and mm-hmm. families I met. 
right? Other people don't have that connection. Obviously, when you have connections to a place, it, it, it increments, and that's understandable, right? Um, the idea that we all have to have this kind of absolute humanist empathy for everyone equally <laughs> is kind of nonsense. We, we don't, right? We, like we, if we don't establish human connections with each other, that doesn't happen. The internet world kind of created where we're getting like in the moment news of horrendous things happening from every corner of the world. Yeah. And people are, are looking at this like, well, why are you paying more uh, attention to a story in, in France than Somalia? Well, you know, a lot of this population is probably either lives in France or has visited France or knows of France or seen movies of France. Yes. Who knows? Somalia, I don't know it. I've never been there. I don't know anybody who's been there. There's no connection, right, besides the story. You could just say, on, like, you know, a lot of people just think on a human level, I feel bad, but how bad do you feel? I don't think that's a lack of empathy. I think it's a lack of human connection and lack of understanding. And or what I think, about well, if I could uh, shift it a little bit? Sorry, what what about like um, when they say, "Oh, nobody's you know covering this." Like Sudan has this going on, and the media is silent. Again, Those that's kind just of clicks. Tweets. I mean, that's clicks. I mean, if people aren't interested in something, they're not going to post it, right? Like people need right. to make clicks these days. So right. if nobody's interested in Somalia, yeah, they're not going to cover it. Now I'm not surprised. Right. Right. So you know, so selective empathy, I think, is a kind of a term that makes us sound colder than we are. I don't think that's coldness. I don't think that's racism. I think it's like, if I now I've spoken to you, I have more empathy for you than somebody I've never spoken to. Yeah. That doesn't make, that doesn't make me selectively empathetic. That means I ha like I'm empathetic based on my human connection. Sure, yeah. Just Do you natural. see what I mean? It's, it's, yep. a, it's a very weird thing to say, like, I lack empathy for the other guy who I'd never yeah. spoke to. No, no, no. My empathy increments, which um, is how it should be. Yeah, somewhat related to that concept is, um, did you have any thoughts when the Notre Dame Tower fire, when that uh, fire happened and just the the various um, uh, comments and outrage surrounding that? Or did you follow that at all? Or I did. I was, it was Again, it was very sad to see how many people immediately started to blame Muslim people when there was no evidence of it. There's, oh, I, I didn't even catch that part of it. Oh, I, I saw a lot of that. I oh, followed okay. it that day. I was, I was, I was seeing it. I was seeing the post. Yeah, Ooh, there was out of control amount of people like posting very big. I guess because sometimes. there were other churches that got caught on fire as well, so they were trying to connect the dots or something. I mean, you could. I mean, in that case, you could probably just say, "I think it might be arson." But yeah. they were blaming specifically Muslims. Oh, okay. Yeah, I saw a My lot thing of with that. that was um, the arguments yeah. that I had got in was more economic and sort of about. Um, why did all these rich people donate so fast to this cause when mm -hmm. there's a bunch of causes they could have donated to that oh, would be better? And my whole thing was the whole, uh, you know, sovereign, it's your, it's your money, you can do with what you want. And also, uh, there were other stories that people were neglecting. Going the like, libertarian, act, libertarian yes. on me, huh? Yeah. But uh, <laughs> there were other stories of like uh, some Swedish billionaire who donated a, you know, a billion dollars to some climate change mm -hmm. initiative. And a couple people shared that, but nowhere near the amount that shared the sentiment, hey, this this was wrong, that this guy don't, you know, these people donated all this money. But my, I was thinking, well, who's going to have to f pay that bill if not donations? Wouldn't, because wouldn't, it's not owned by the uh, Catholic Church. It was actually owned by the state of France, I believe. Like, I believe France had taken ownership of that building. So the taxpayer would have had to, um, you know, somehow pay that, uh, I think. And then that's always the person that they're sort of rooting for is the tax, but you know the whole yellow vest thing and the the Very economy so bad. Interesting topic that that you're bringing up. I 
I don't know. That that's a very hard thing that I'd have to think about a lot is how people should donate money. Like, are, should they not just donate it to, for example, um, the you know the, the, a church that was very old, right? Yeah. It's like how much does that matter? But yeah. then you know, should what what should they do? The conservation of of art or something like that. It's like, well, when there's people dying in the world, should you be doing that? For example. I, you know, I studied film. That's what I originally studied in UC Santa Barbara. I'm a huge film buff. I love, love movies. Does it, like, you know, do, do I like the idea of, of putting out there that nobody should put money into the conservation of film and old movies? Mm -hmm. Right? I wouldn't say that, but, you know, maybe I should be saying that all that money would be better off spent, you know, feeding the children of the world. Right, what, what, it's just a movie at the end of the but, day. But that, when but, I think of that too, I, I kept saying to people like, there are other charities, you know, that exist. That pe there are yeah. other people donating money. Just because a lot of money was donated very fast to this thing that you don't think is important, does not mean that there's not other initiatives going on simultaneously where things are being helped along. Like, do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, they think it's like yeah. there's only this one billionaire that just donated this billion buck, uh, you know, overnight, and there's no other money flowing around. Like, I mean, there's people trying to help the world every day in varying degrees and yeah. you just got to accept that there's going to be some donations that you don't quite agree with, I guess. Um, I don't know. I do malaria that's, nets. That's my thing. A couple bucks a month after all my good. bills are paid and that I do, uh, against malaria. Cause actually that was, um, I forget the gentleman's name, but he's been on Sam Harris and he wrote a book on the most effective charities. And mm. that was one that he recommended at the top as far as, um, using the most of their capital to actually go to, uh, real world situation so i actually see the country where my nets go how many nets went to each country and that kind of thing interestingly i i, I do give to a few charities but i for example the i i like to give to pbs mm. because I, I i i find it the i consume a lot of their documentaries i find like they they do some of the the best historical documentaries i've ever found as a person who watched watches a ridiculous amount of documentaries. Are you like ken burns stuff is that well, Ken Burns is part of PBS. He does do his his uh, documentaries on there, but they have a lot more than that. Yeah, a lot, lot, lot more than that. I mean, some uh, sometimes I'll be looking on a uh, researching a topic, and I'll look for a lot of documentaries, and most of them don't seem that objective to me. And then I see the PBS documentary, and they're you know having interviews with the the like the the people who were involved in the events, you know, the real uh, historical background, and at least as far as I my research goes, it looks like the most objective kind of reporting I'd seen on the topic. So I, I think to, to me, for example, PBS is a treasure in the United States. I wish, I wish there was a kind of a, a similar PBS thing in Chile or other countries. Um, I think it's very underappreciated, but that's the kind of thing where I was, I'm saying like, you know, should should I be instead sending that money to, for malaria? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like it's a good question, right? <laughs> no, it's definitely a, a good question. I think, um, what it, I think what it, uh, brought up in people is just this growing sentiment about, uh, against rich people. And against, I think it was uh, the amount of money that was sent to, to, yeah. to the right on that on uh, on the Notre Dame Cathedral. I think it was it seemed like kind of an absurd amount of money for an old building. As much as as much as as any of us can say, we do have appreciation. We wish this could be renovated again. Yeah. But when we start talking about like hundreds of millions of dollars for like an mm -hmm. old building and we get into like the billions number, we're like, okay, I think, like, you know, I think yeah, this could slow right. down to destruction. I think that was the issue. I think, I think it was the amount of, of dollars that we started seeing there build up and we we're just, and I think at some point 
maybe it would have helped calm it down if somebody, if the person receiving the money had said, we got too much, we're probably going to send this <laughs> to some charity and slow down the construction of Notre Dame, right? Yeah, I don't know. It did, yeah, it's a very um, interesting area of discussion, though. But that one thing about the guy donating to this climate change initiative did make me think, like, nobody's paying attention to that. And climate change is probably something that affects the impoverished uh, people of the world, which are, again, who these um, people are always rooting for. So, um, but again, I guess I, it speaks to and then, news digest. And then, uh, and, when you were talking about, a, you know, donating to problems that are more immediate to people's lives, yeah. you know, I could, you could also ask them there, should you donate to charities that help people immediately or in the long term? For example, should you help, you know, help starving children or should you help to climate change, which would cause, you know, massive starvation in 50 years to 100 yeah. years? Yeah, exactly. right. You know, so. Well, and the other I, thing is a foreign aid thing, right? Like, um, how do you and maybe maybe you have some insights on this because you've studied foreign policy and that like mm -hmm. um, helping third world nations with just sums of cash like where does that go wrong where does it go right you know uh, the little bit of reading i've done on it i, I you see these um you know yeah. these guys building palaces and that in africa with the money and you know some the money not going where it's sort of supposed to go and that kind of thing i don't know there's a very interesting situation i saw like it might have been almost 10 years ago this happened maybe a little bit less but around then there was a mass starvation in Somalia. I might get a few things wrong because this was quite a while. This is a really kind of old story, but I'll never. But I find it fascinating as far as like how aid goes. So there was a ma very very big famine going on in Somalia. The United States wanted to send aid. You, I read stories, for example, of women leaving their babies in huts. And just abandoning them because they didn't have the energy to pick up the baby and go somewhere and find food. Mm. Right? That that's how starved they were. You hear a story like that and you're just like, that is starvation. That's famine. And the United States obviously rightfully wanted to send aid. The problem was is that the only uh, organizations that could distribute the aid effectively was Al Shabaab, which is basically the african equivalent of al-qaeda mm -hmm. right it's a very horrible fundamentalist islamic extremist group that takes child soldiers mm -hmm. but that was the only way and basically the united states would be empowering al-shabaab by giving them the aid and then they redistribute it to the people so what do you do there do you like help stop a famine that is of epic proportion in this country. Like, you know, you, if you send some aid, some food aid, you could help possibly save the lives of a few million people. Yeah. Or do you not, and you not empower this horrific organization that goes around to villages, kills people, rapes little girls, and takes child soldiers? What would you do? I thought, I, I looked at that situation, I'll never forget it because I, 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 looked, at the, I looked at that story and I said, thank God I'm not a politician. I don't know yeah. what I would do here. No. Would you empower would you empower a group that rapes little girls? Or would you or would you empower them and help that starving woman who can't pick up her baby? Exactly. I have that. no idea what I would do then. So the so it's a lot of people in the world, when they look at global issues happening, for example, in Somalia, 
and everybody seems to know what the right solution is to every problem, no matter what it is. I see a, a story pops up, and everybody's just like, I know what, this is what they should do. I'm a liberal. I'm a Republican. Obviously, this is what you should do. When you really know what's going on in a lot of these countries, mm-hmm. you don't have the right answer because there is no right answer. There's no right answer in that situation. You, any mm-hmm. situ, Anything you pick in that situation, you are essentially committing a horrible crime, no matter what you pick. It's a losing yeah, situation. That's insane. And that, that's just yeah. the real world, I guess. That's the, the, yeah. the problems that uh, we And it goes back to what we were talking about in North Korea. What do you do if this country that, that is the worst... Uh, most oppressive country in the world with concentration camps. Do you go shake their hand and try to prove diplomacy, right? Or do you say this? You know, this is a horrible dictator of epic proportions, and I would never shake his hand. Mm. You know, what, what do you do there? It's not he shook, easy answer. He shook his hand and he gave him three elbow taps. Yeah, well, I mean, especially in Trump's case, he has said things about Kim Jong Un. That are just unforgivable to me. It's it, the things so that he has great potential. I think was one of he those. says he's a great leader and he does a great job and it's so hard running his country. Things that are not it goes beyond diplomacy. That's not diplomacy. Right. That's not diplomacy. That's just po- it's just populism, right? Mm. Po- is that how you say populismo? Yeah. You have populism? to remember that this is I'm speaking in a second language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't speak English that often. Populism is it populism? Yeah. 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 Where like a politician appeals to the popular yeah, vote. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Okay. Right. Um, yeah. Jumping back, sh- shifting over back to Chile, um, you'd mentioned um, somewhere else, I didn't know this, that abortion is completely illegal in Chile? Is that still the it case? Used to be. Used oh, did they change it? They changed it, what was it, four years ago? Oh, okay. So, well, what were back then when it was illegal? Where would would women go? Yes. So this is this is a this is a topic that people get very confused about when I talk about uh, the illegality of uh, of abortion. People people don't understand what I'm talking about. When I when I was talking about Chile abortion being illegal, it's illegal. It was illegal in Chile under all circumstances. That's something people don't understand. Like when when Chile was. When it was illegal here, it was only part of six countries in the whole world where abortion was illegal. But then people said, "Oh, but it's um, it's illegal in my country." It's like, no, no, no. It's like it's only a, it's only a, you don't have the uh, optional abortion, but it's still you still have abortion under the conditions of like rape, health, uh, the health, like mother's yeah. life in danger. I'm talking about a countries where in every single circumstance, literally when the mother's life is in danger. Of dying, like when it, like the, the, uh, the, the, what you may call it? Oh, God, this is my English again. Fetus. Oh, fetus? The fetus. The fetus yeah. is in like the fallopian tube, right? Yeah. Like it can't be there. It would kill them. Like in those cases, it's yeah. illegal. Now, even in Chile, like for example, the situation I just described, they would do it like under the table without kind of putting it on the chart, right? So they it would, did happen would, when it was illegal, though. Like it, it would happen. But sometimes women couldn't get it done under certain circumstances, under cases of rape. There was, for example, there was a story a few years ago of a journalist woman where the fetus was developing under a malformation. It didn't have a heart. It didn't have a brain. There was, yeah. there was no development in this child. She had to take it to term. She had to give birth. She wasn't an option. And that I like when you hear stories like that, it's I, I, I call it like a lack of respect to women 
and yeah. and the burden they bear of having the children. Um, and even in Chile now, there's only certain circumstances where they can get an abortion. For example, rape, incest, uh, mother's life in danger. I think those are the three. It's still not, you know, optional. It's still not like, I just want to have an abortion because it's Thursday kind of thing. Um, (laughs) But in the United States, for example, there's optional abortion. You can have an abortion because you want to. Um, But an important aspect of that topic that I like to bring up is that every single country that where abortion is completely illegal under all circumstances are all Christian majority countries. None of them are Islamic. Mm. And that's because that the topic of abortion is not really considered haram or prohibited under Islam. That doesn't, and people again get confused. This doesn't mean that Muslims are pro-abortion, right? They're, they're mm. usually against it. But under extreme circumstances, there's nothing theologically that opposes it. Mm. Okay? So that is something to take into account that how theology influences people to be a religious conservative doesn't mean everybody believes the same thing because you you have to remember even saudi arabia was a hardcore uh, uh, theocracy women couldn't drive but they could get an abortion Hmm. abortion wasn't completely illegal in their in their country but it was illegal in chile right Hmm. where it was a very secular country so in in a very well-developed country very high levels of education but we couldn't have it here. It's like, so there's, there was less women's rights in some ways in Chile than there was in Saudi. So this is, it's a very good, so w- what I like to bring up about that is that everybody kind of points to, for example, Sam Harris as well. He likes to point to how theology creates a negative circumstance in a country. You, I think it's a little bit more easy to digest when you actually bring up how a religion actually creates a, a good situation in the country versus another. So not just saying like, well, if you study theology, you can understand how it develops terrorism. Why not also say like, if you study the theology, you can understand why no Muslim country in the world, no matter how theocratic, doesn't prohibit abortion. Mm. Do you see what I mean? And if you understand that, like, oh, there's actually like an upside like every every country that prohibits abortion on every level, they're all Christian because yeah. it's part of the theology, right? So I think that's a it's a it's an interesting example in in that case. Hmm. Um, what what's the deal with uh, Chile's geographic situation? Is there mountains there? Is that why it's so long the Andes, and tall? man. Yeah. Okay. Don't you remember the football team? No, Did I you ever saw, see the movie yeah. Alive? The football yeah, team no, that I ate each other. I haven't seen it, but yeah, no, I'm familiar. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay, Big mountains. <laughs> yeah, Big it's mountain. uh there's no other country that's like looks like that. Japan is like close because it's just long well, the island. Andes are I don't I don't know if there's much more like there's other places maybe in the Himalayas or something, but the Andes are crazy. You fly it over it and it's just mountains of mountains yeah. and mountains covered in, in snow. And they also have a large claim on uh, Antarctica, which other nations do, I guess, um of land that like it's not recognized under the treaty, but uh I did. I didn't really think about that before. Yeah, that. Tierra de Fuego. Yeah, yeah Tierra so de Fuego. Like, so old, old explorers mm-hmm. that just um, planted flags and stuff there, or like. Yeah, well, it's a very odd thing. For I think Chile actually says like they have a claim to like a a chunk of of Antarctica, yeah. but technically it's not it it's not really part of the country. They want it to be part of the country, but I think yeah. actually no country actually has 
like border claim to Antarctica. I don't think it's actually recognized by the United Nations. It's yeah, no, it's thing. definitely not recognized. Um, yeah. So why standard. again was Ch- why was Chile such a home for Palestinians? What was the history there? Why Chile? Um, apparently, because it was a it was a thriving economy at the time. Um, now which, we're talking this, World War II era. No, or? Talking, no World War One. Oh. Because the reason that Palestinians left Palestine, and and remember, this is like Palestine was basically a, a region of the Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. right? Just like Armenia, right? Armenia was a country, but it was under the Ottoman Empire at that time. Mm-hmm. We've heard of the Armenian Genocide. Uh, the Ottoman Empire, when it went into World War One, it started recruiting people, and it they forced a lot of Christians to, into recruitment, and they would just throw them into the front front of the lines with no guns and just kill them they used also world one world war one as an excuse to commit the armenian genocide um and that's why a lot of the christian populations of a lot of countries left lebanon syria armenia palestine uh, and they came to places like uh chile and latin america because there was a lot of boom during world war one in latin america as far as economics argentina was a very big economy and brazil as well um a lot of people don't know this but um during that time argentina was among the top economies in the world Mm. you know used to be now obviously not but there was was a very big boom back in those days in, in latin america and so a lot of palestinians came to chile why specifically chile kind of a mystery Mm. but uh but that is the reason they left because of uh persecution okay um so in your recent readings and studying um what are some of the biggest insights you've found about islamic cultures living in other countries anything surprise you or stand out oh i got great stories for you You want to hear some of the stories i've heard okay all right yeah this is exclusive I, i i haven't told anybody this on a podcast yet okay great so so um so for example i met with uh and is a Muslim leader here in La- in uh, in Chile, and um, I don't want to be too specific as to who um, because I'm still doing some of this research. But he told me stories. For example, uh, we went into the topic of extremism, which I thought was going to be a very delicate situation to go into, right? Rising extremism in Latin America. I didn't even have to bring it up. He was happy to talk about it immediately. He said he had connections to. Um, PDI, which is kind of like the FBI of, of Chile, uh, police, government officials, because he gets a lot of people coming to his his mosque and talking about extremist ideas. They start talking about a lot of politics, you know, instead of religion. Uh, the United States invasion of Iraq, Israel, Palestine. They start to sound very fishy about how they speak about these topics. Mm. He said he would, get, he would get three kinds of people wanting to convert to Islam: people who wanted to convert because of the religion people who are marrying into the religion and people who are very political and the political people were the kind of dangerous one that he worried about. So when he got these people coming into his mosque, he wouldn't, he would inform like, you know, kind of the police agencies, like this is maybe somebody you want to watch out for. He seems kind of crazy. Um, I asked him how many of those people he would get in a year. He's like, Oh, several a month, which to me is very worrying. Um, very interesting thing to find out during this research. And then I asked him, well, wh- what do you tell these people? Do you tell them, like, in, we're not interested in having you? And he said, well, in Islam, 
it it's an obligation of the religion that if somebody wants to learn about Islam, you must share Islam with them. You must help them come into the religion. That's an obligation as a Muslim. So he would say that if a person was coming to convert because of the religion, he would make it kind of hard. He said if they were coming to convert because of marriage, he'd make it less dis- difficult. But he said if these people who are coming who seem like very political and weird, kind of extreme, he said, then I just go full Islam on these guys. You got to you gotta do circumcision. You got you to gotta pray five times a day immediately. You got to start practicing fasting. He's like, in two weeks, I got these people running out the door. So that was his way of right. kind of getting these people. Like, so that way he completes his obligation as a Muslim and he can get rid of them, wow, <laughs> which I thought was a really funny story that mm-hmm. is like, oh, you want to know Islam? I'll show you Islam. So <laughs> right? scared them away, sort of. Yeah, them away. So, and it, it was this topic that really uh, he worried about was extremism. He, you know, that people coming to his mosque and and uh, and talking these ideas. It's it's he's not there for that. He doesn't want these people around. And so it's it's very interesting to to hear from Muslims who run mosques and 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 groups, and they're very worried about extremism. And I think that's one of the the things you learn uh, when you actually go out into the world and actually speak with Muslims, which. I feel there is some val- uh, some validity to saying put your money where your mouth is, mm-hmm. and I and I did that on my own. I said, you know, I'm talking about this topic of a lot of Islam. I'm very critical of the religion, but I I haven't traveled to the Middle East. I haven't gone out of my way to meet Muslims. I want to just contact, you know, people around and say I'd like to speak with you. See what mm-hmm. happens. I thought maybe for a second I thought maybe they would they were like oh no you know not interested in talking with you, maybe. Right. And I and very clearly, I would say, like, I'm, I'm not looking to convert. I, I'm I do research. You know, I talk about this. I, I want to learn. Teach me. Yeah. It's very happy to speak to me. Super nice people up until now that I've met. I'm, I'm and I'm really excited to keep doing a lot more research on it. It's very fun. So, you know, and you're probably going to run into some different kinds of people. Right. People, maybe some extreme, some very secular. But I think that's uh, it's a it's an important thing to do, and I'll see what I do with this, right? With this kind of research. Yeah, I was just gonna and, ask, like, are you gonna write a book or do more blogs or or I, another, I another podcast? I don't know, because it was very because I didn't know what to expect from this, if you know what I mean. Like yeah. may, maybe like everybody tells me to go to hell, I won't talk <laughs> yeah. to you. So why plan anything with it? But since it's doing well for now, just keep doing it and see what what happens. Hmm. So that, but I do do my podcast, which is fun interviewing. People who write books and and secularists from around the world. It gives me the chance to to talk with people like you are with me now. Yeah, what I really yeah. like is I like to read books. It's it's a lot of fun that if I read a book and then I just tweeted at the author, "Will you call me on Skype? I want to talk with you." They're probably like, "This is this is a weird request, right?" But yeah. if I said, "Hey, can I call you on Skype? I have a podcast and I'd like to interview you." Then, then it's cool. Then they're like fine with it. So it gives me the yeah. chance to read a book and then talk with the author who's might be in Iran or Australia or the UK or oh yeah, Canada. No, I feel the same way. Yeah. Um, I did that with the guy who wrote Perfect Soldiers. I got Terry McDermott to come on my show and like he's not doing any any press or anything. He's just sitting yeah. like writing about baseball now. And he's like, I don't even really care about terrorism Isn't that anymore. Amazing? But I'll, t- I'll tell you the 15, story. Like, Fifteen years ago, we couldn't have done that. We couldn't just like buy a book, read it, and be like, I'm going to call the author and talk with it's him for a couple honestly hours. honestly the coolest thing ever. I, I absolutely love that. I, if I, even if I don't, if I got a hundred listens for every podcast, I'd still be doing it because it's, it's, it's so much fun. I mean, I, 
if I get to read a book like Masia Linajad, who's an Iranian activist that I mentioned before, I read her book. I admire the hell out of her, you know, such admirations. And I tweet at her on, on social media and I say, can I interview her? No problem comes on. I get to speak with her. I, I think I get like about nine out of 10 people say yes to me, which it's I, amazing. it's absolutely great. I, that, that to me, as much as we bitch and whine about Twitter and how horrible social media is, and there's yeah. a lot of downsides to that, I have to say that to me is an amazing, incredible part of social media that I get to contact these people and speak to them. I agree, and it's definitely a double-edged sword. Um, did you want to touch briefly on we mentioned before we started recording that there's all these downsides to social media, and you experienced some? Um... Yeah, I haven't done my podcast in a while. I am. I I hope I, I'm I'm planning on like reviving it in the, in the next few weeks. Um, but I felt I needed to take a break because I started doing social media in 2015. Prior to that, I was on I'm on Goodreads, that kind of web you know social media website for books. Okay. And I was reading a ton and you can see, I could see how many books I read. And then suddenly 2015, 16, like 2016, I read like one book Yeah. and I was getting really out of shape. I was a person who liked exercising a lot, doing martial arts and things like that. And I was, I was getting very overweight and between not reading books, getting overweight, not moving a lot, being, being very sedentary. And then what I'm doing while I'm being sedentary is being on my phone reading Mindless. horrible comments yes <laughs> right like that are racist and awful and just fighting all the time with social media it's not a normal thing to just be alone in your room on this device right here and just yeah. be fighting with people for years non-stop <laughs> all day it's like it's horrible and i don't care who says it's like oh, i don't care about the haters no if you got haters on you like eight hours a day for you know three years you're gonna you're gonna face some depression. You're gonna have some health issues, yeah. right? Some stress is, issues. I almost don't like that people talk about it's the fault of the haters. We need to change the haters, the bullying, and all that. It's actually my fault. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't blame like like I'm I'm putting my opinion out there. You know, there, there's I'm putting it out there to millions of people. Yeah. They don't like what they're hearing. Some of them get very upset about it. Called me all kind of racist names. Like, you know, it's not that I'm okay with that. But at some point, I have to ask myself, how can I keep doing that and excusing it? I got to put it. It's my responsibility to put the phone down and go live my life, mm -hmm. right? And when you start building a social media audience, as you might in the future, you got to be very careful to like, you start to feel obligation to it. Oh, I got to tweet. I got to put out a video. I got to do this. Right. Right. And suddenly, like, you know, you're putting in like five hours a day besides everything else in your life of work. And suddenly you're not exercising, you're not seeing your friends. And mm -hmm. so I read a book um, on, on social media addiction called uh, Irresistible. Irresistible. I forget the, who the author is right now, but the, the book is called Irresistible. It's a fascinating book with a lot of scientific studies. Uh, he talks about uh, the main focus is social media addiction, but he also talks about video game addiction and studies that have been done with animals and monkeys and things like that. Um, for, for example, in the book, what I thought was fascinating that there is a rehab center for people who play World of Warcraft. There's a little rehab center, just like there's oh, a I believe that. 
Yeah, you believe that, yeah. but for somebody who don't play doesn't play video games, it's it's it was a surprise to me. Right when 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 you messaged me that you were ready for the podcast, I was literally alt tabbed in a game finishing <laughs> up the round. I was like, <laughs> so I I, I I wasn't I, I'm not very into video games, right? Yeah. So I didn't really face that kind of a. I'm not an addictive person, and I don't have an addictive personality. I don't yeah. consume drugs. I don't smoke. I dr- I drink occasionally. You know, I would exercise a good amount. Social media was actually my first problematic addiction where it was negatively affecting my life and my health. And I took a full month off, no social media whatsoever, deleted the apps from my phone, read the book, and it, it, it you know, it changed a lot. Started, you know, exercising a lot more, uh, starting to go to a CrossFit school close to my house. Very cool. Uh, you know, trying try to get back into contact with some old friends and really bring down my social media use. Yeah. I I think I can balance it. I think for a lot of people I've seen online who are addicts, it might be the case that some people need to completely delete social media. That's um, interesting. Um, did you yeah. hear that uh, maybe it was last year, Sam Harris had a guy on that. It was actually one of, he was the er, one of the early um, software engineers at, I don't know if it was LinkedIn or one of those, but he's, com- he's completely off social media and he's... He, like he's one of the guys who invented these algorithms and such, and he's he's that is very typical. It. That's very typical. Actually, in the in the beginning of the book, I I just mentioned irresistible. It talks about it. They he interviews or finds out through stories of multiple, like big social media CEOs and founders. Even yeah. Steve Jobs, for example, he found some interview with Steve Jobs where he said he ref- like he he presented the iPad as some like big revolutionary thing that even a baby can use but then in another interview he said I would never let my 14-year-old daughter yep. or niece like use it yeah. right because they design these things everything the phone itself the tablet the computer the apps the games it's all designed for addiction it's not designed for you to use it sometimes it's a designed for you to use it all the time, nonstop. The, one right? of the things is uh, on Twitter. They used I don't know if it was Facebook as well, but there was one thing uh, where the delay of your no- of your little red notification of the numbers was not a lag thing from your internet. That was like put in there. It was programmed in to have a slight delay for whatever psychological reason. You know, some studied reasoning behind that that gives you more. Have of a you noticed that Facebook and Twitter now? If you're not getting a notification, it starts to say you might be interested in this post. I haven't specifically, but I, that. yeah, in Twitter, for example, it's a little purple star. That's okay. not something that you're subscribed to. It's something that you might be interested in. Right. So it's sending you notifications that come look at me, even if it's something you don't purposely follow. So it's again, look at me. Come, come to you know Twitter. Come to. Facebook. So it, some of them are worse than others careful. as well. I think like, yeah. like Facebook. Well, obviously, is really bad Uber, the Uber app is not meant for you to stay looking at it all day. Obviously, yeah. right? But the social media apps like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and a lot of other ones are meant to keep you stuck. And that yeah. happened to me very hard with Twitter. I think, mm-hmm. and it happens to a lot of people with Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm one of those pr- people who use the excuse of, well, for my business, I need to, because I'm a DJ and I'm a graphic designer, so I use these platforms to promote my stuff, which is true, but that can become an excuse to to be on it all the time. But I think it's also a little bit of just, I don't know if this book talks about this, but having self-awareness and being in the moment and being very present, because when you're on these apps, you need to, don't just be, you know, 
asleep basically in zombie mode, you got to be aware, like, okay, ask yourself, what am I doing on Facebook right now? Why am I looking at this? You're just scrolling and it's your cousin's kid's birthday party. And then it's this guy ranting about politics. It's like, is that stuff useful? Right. And another thing is um, one that I'm kind of addicted to is Reddit. (laughs) And that's more of, I think, a gray area where it's not quite a social media app, but it there is aspects of social media involved in it. Like there's accounts and private messaging and, and um, posting. And, but I think you, you can get a lot of benefit from reading stuff on Reddit, um, especially just other people's perspectives or like I do a lot of personal finance reading on there, like comparing my situations, you know, to others, like stuff like that, that again, it could be a dangerous thing because you're convincing yourself that it's, that it's useful, but maybe yeah. there is some useful stuff there. You know, I don't know. I don't know how useful actually social media is. I think of the overwhelming majority of it is a lot of like reality show drama. It's like it's yeah. like the Jersey Shore of 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 the electronic world, right? Okay. Um, I, I think I think that like a lot of what I see on YouTube and Twitter and Facebook is actually not very useful. Totally. Um, a, a lot of people ask me like, "Have you seen this video?" Which is a video from a person who made a video about a youtuber who's anti-social justice and he made a video about a woman (laughs) who is pro-social justice and her video was about you know some politician who is who is right wing and it's just like whoa it's like it's like what i call outrage inception right where you yes falling into these levels of of outrage it's like i'm outraged about the outrage and this person's outraged about the outrage about totally and it's it just becomes like what am i looking at i really i literally saw a video that that the person in the YouTube video was analyzing a video that was about a person analyzing a video that was about a person analyzing oh a video. God. And I was, and it was, <laughs> I was, it was, it was, you know, the, the point of the video was, didn't matter. It was, <laughs> it was that aspect of it. I was fascinated. I'm like, it was like, like I said, it was like, inse- it was like an outrage inception. Like, yeah. what, what am I looking at? <laughs> like, that could be a good like, name for a book or a podcast. Outrage inception. But... Yeah. Well, that would be a, a good book. I, I, I also think, um, if we're talking about social media, I a lot of the people who talk about social justice and outrage culture and a lot of these aspects, I I don't necessarily agree after all these years of kind of, you know, seeing the problems of of uh this outrage culture and people who are into identity politics. I see a lot of the people who are against this kind of fringe left-wing mentality as focusing on the individuals instead of the institutions that enable them so what i want to what i mean by that is people think that crazy social justice warriors radical feminists are a new thing they're not they've always been around millennials think like they invented this stuff right is oh in the last five years suddenly we have crazy crazy left-wing radicals there's always been left-wing radicals they were go to university and anywhere and and ask people who were there 100 years ago, right? 90-year-old 90, 90 old man. Were there left-wing radicals in your school? Of course there were. Mm. What's the difference? What changed really? Well, that left-wing radical was probably him and a group of five friends with banners on their campus grounds yelling their heads off. Mm-hmm. Now they have a phone. And that phone allows them to write a very short tweet about my professor said something sexist right yeah that triggered me and that can get uh, 10,000 retweets that is see- that and that's just the retweets it's seen by tens of thousands more and that person the tweet and that person might end up on CNN 
So it's mm -hmm. distributed now to millions. And the university freaks out because one student with crazy like ideas said something on social media within a span of five seconds. And now there, there's because the, the institution is so scared, they fire the professor. This dynamic, this power dynamic where the student can get the teacher fired didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. Right. Of course, like they could complain to the school if he said something really horrible. And you're saying but that's based on social media and it, 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 that didn't exist. Yeah. When I was when I wasn't even a, when I was in university in Santa Barbara in 2005, this wasn't a thing. I was on I was on Facebook when you had to have a university email yeah. to get on. Right, right? right. Like this wasn't a thing yet. Right. Yeah. So what I what I always say is like when I was in school, we were scared of our teachers. Now I'm like it's very common to see. I see teachers are scared of their students because yeah. the students have power, and it's not a power over the dean and the school. It's a social power they have through this medium where they can gain mobs that are outside the realm of the school. Right? It's like so. And imagine like the, the they can gain a voice through the retweeting of people who like they, that person might be in California, but the people commenting might be in in Japan and Syria and, and Canada and the UK and Chile or something right. like that, right? People have nothing to do with the subject. And that power leads to the, the firing of the teacher through a social justice kind of expulsion. So what I think needs to change is, you're not gonna change the fact that there are radical people in a school. There's always gonna be radical people in a school. The next generation, they're gonna find a few more radical. It doesn't take a lot. It takes one moron to do this, right? right? The problem is is the the mob that forms around it, and then the response by the institution. So what the institution needs to do is like we're not scared of social media mobs. We're in we're a school. Why do we care of one right. tweet that went viral? That's not their job. But the problem is these are old people who didn't grow up with an iPhone, right? I didn't grow. I mean, like I'm talking about people who are like 70 years old. I'm almost 40. I didn't grow up with an iPhone. I didn't have a cell phone I was, until I was 20. And even then it wasn't an iPhone, right? Same. So, yeah. right? so, so these are very new things. Um, in the book I, I, I read before, it, it made a very good point. The only people who were born with iPhones and tablets in this moment, the people who were born with it are about 14 years old. So we don't know the effects of a full-grown adult who was born with smartphone and tablet we don't know what they right. look like yet we don't know what that world looks like yet well you mentioned the 90s and i'm i'm 31 so we're not too far apart in age but so yeah, look, yeah i was kind of, i was from the 90s yeah. as well and um yeah. our our peers we always bring this up is like don't you just want to go back to the 90s i mean i guess everybody has that thing but it's because we were on that cusp of go, riding your bikes to your friend's house knocking on their door to hang out and then we all got cell phones and then the social media and everything. So we see, we'd seen both sides and um, there's just something about that time period where things were just a little slower, a little more disconnected and you just had more space and it was just a, something. It's more not, it's not that it's more disconnected is that we were more connected in person versus oh, okay. being more connected through a, like the social media medium or a smartphone medium. Yes. Um, right. Or, or the fact that, for example, that we used to call each other instead of text each other, yep. right? It's it's even if we're talking through the phone, there's a little bit more intimacy through the voice, right? Um, yeah. Versus just a text. Texts and all that are always misinterpreted. The the tone is um, 
you know, when you're trying to say something, they, they interpret it as something else. And so, Oh, yeah. that happens to me a lot. Yeah. Cause you, you find some sarcasm or something in your head. Yeah. You exactly. But I mean, aside, like, so we talked about the bad stuff, but going back again, I mean, there's great things to social media. Like we said in the nineties, I wouldn't be able to read a book and then interview the author from the, like from my home. Right. And, yes. and put it on a online, like a, like a show, like a podcast. Yep. So mm -hmm. that's a great thing, but there are horrible things. And, but the, the, the important aspect is to find balance in your life and remember, like, you know, not to be all consumed by social media and your phone and totally exercise. Exercise is so important. I'm a person who's so advocate, like exercise, just like I hear Joe Rogan talk about a lot. I completely agree with that. I don't I don't agree with any kind of body positive movement that doesn't explicitly endorse good diet and exercise. It's not about looks. It doesn't matter if you look great or not. Just exercise, eat right. If you don't do that, everything is going to be worse. Stress, yeah. depression, the energy you have throughout your life. It's just it's it's going to be worse. Do some kind of exercise. Do some kind of healthy eating. Totally, I agree. Yeah. Um, sort of my last quick question is like, um, you do a lot of reading and such, but what do you have a, a general, like a news diet of sorts or any particular podcasts or um, news sources that you go to or you just sort of mix of everything? I actually kind of gave up on news. I find, yeah, I, yeah I, found, I found myself like I went from books in 2014 and before to kind of being more involved in social media. And social media atmosphere is very like a watchdog kind of mentality of all-consuming everyday news, right? Every news story and what's trending and things like that. But that is very time-consuming, and it's not. Yes. And I found it to be not very educational. And one of the things I realized is if I really want to get through a book within a week or two, there's certain things I need to cut out. Like there's certain things I can't do. For example, I don't follow sports. Right. I wish I could watch UFC, for example, because I, I practice martial arts. But it's one of those things where it's like I need to cut out some things from my life. And so like, OK, I, I do prioritize like work, some social life, um, exercise, and I need time to read books and I like watching movies. I can't do everything in the week. What can I do? Right. And as far as like, OK, the, in the intellectual aspect, what am I going to read? And between a book and following the news all the time, I, I said, okay, I prefer books. I, like, I feel more fulfilled when I pick a topic, let's say about Iran. I want to learn about Iran this week. I read two books on it in the month versus just you know nitpicking little stories here and there. I don't think you're a person who just reads news articles and, and opinion stories is actually educated on world topics. You get a very very superficial understanding of everything mm. like you, you know the jack of all trades yep. kind of master kind of, aspect. of none, master of none. You, you yep. know very you know very little about everything therefore you know you know something you know nothing very well that's a great point yeah yeah so to me i i rather know a very few things but very well yeah and and this is some, this is a philosophy that i've heard a million times in martial arts as well it's like it's better to concentrate on one form of fighting than like nitpicking little, not nitpicking, that's the wrong word. Like picking at like, you know, li little bits of all kind of martial arts. You want to be a boxer, be a great boxer. Want to right. be a kickboxer, jujitsu guy, focus on that one thing, master it. Right. And I think that goes for intellectualism as well. 
better to pick a few topics, master it. That's why when you ask me certain things about like um, about immigration in the United States, or that I'm very quick. I'm like, I don't know about that. Haven't followed it, but I can tell you what I do know and where right. I, where I can contribute and where I focus myself. The rest is like, you know I mean, and I see a lot of these people on online that because there's this culture of wanting to be all consuming of little bits of stories everywhere. There are me social media personalities who comment on every story, no matter how little they know about it. Right. right? Yeah. And, and I actually have a term for this. I call it prophetic information seeking where you are interested. Like you're, there's something happening with Trump. There's something happening with North Korea. There's something happening with Iran. There's something happening with social justice. People don't go to experts on topics. They go to the same person they respect all the time. For example, mm -hmm. a very famous person is like Jordan Peterson. People want to know like, oh, what does Jordan Peterson think about North Korea? Even though he knows nothing about it. <laughs> right. But, but he might still comment on it because people are, so many people want to know what he thinks about it. Prophetic yeah. information seeking, right? Mm. And my philosophy is like, if there's a, if something is happening in, Egypt, I want to know what an Egyptian expert who's written books on this is saying. People don't do that. They don't go to experts. They go to who they, one guy that is like their guru. Mm. Yeah, so, that makes sense. So, so I try to stay away from that internet kind of culture, social media culture. I, I look for books. I look for authors to, to read about. Yeah, yeah that's, I think I'm a, maybe a mix of both types, but I think I'd like to move closer to that style of just getting you'll, more into you'll find things. it more fulfilling to read a book i do when i when i finish the book for example when i got really into like a news watchdogness of in 2015 and 16 and i had stopped reading books suddenly i'd gone and kind of missed books and read one and when i finished that book i was like i feel more fulfilled about learning about this topic from this one book than yeah. two years of social media news reading like sure. I, I, if you had asked me about any of the topics I'd written news stories on in the last, you know, two <laughs> years, I'd be able to tell you like practically nothing on them. Yeah. But on this topic, and like suddenly I became a small expert, right? I think I think you can kind of almost become an, a semi-expert if you read three books to five. I think if you read eight to ten books on and on one topic, you can yeah. you can pretty much tell uh, express yourself to be an expert. That's like for example, that's not too many. I, I, I've read a I've read enough books on North Korea, for example, that I'm confident to say I'm an expert on it. Hmm. Right? I've read there's other books I've read. For example, social media addiction. I read one book. I know yeah. I know quite a bit now. Am I an expert? By no means. Right? Yeah. So. Um, that one, if you're interested, that I read was uh, it was uh, ten hmm. ten reasons to delete your social media accounts right now. And that's uh, yeah. the good thing about the book I read is that it wasn't kind of a self help. Uh, lifestyle book. Yeah, it was more of an investigation into addiction, which was mm -hmm. very interesting. So I, it, I don't know what kind of book you're, you read, but the one I read was was more oriented towards like scientific research on addiction on social media. This one touched on it a little bit, but yeah, it was more um, varied in the reasonings as well, like more like uh, repercussions in the in the real world and stuff stuff like mm. that. Uh, this is Jaron Lanier was the guy's name. Uh, anyway, if Go people ahead. are interested, um, and the one you read was. Um, Called. Uh, let me let me see. The one I read was Irresistible. Adam Alter. Okay, cool. Yeah, if people want to check those out. Uh, okay, man. Well, we did like two hours. It's been fun. Uh, I want to thank you again for being a guest. And where can people find you? They can go to your Twitter. You may not be as active as you used to be, but 
everything is Lala Degash. Lala Degash podcast, Lala Degash on Twitter, Lala Degash on, on Facebook. Um, and my podcast is on iTunes and, and uh, podcast uh, mediums. It's on uh, SoundCloud um, and YouTube as well. I rarely use video, though, so it's, uh, YouTube is probably not very practical. Um, but I will start doing it soon again. And I interview a lot of authors, a lot of activists from around the world. Um, I, I already did an interview that I'll probably put up kind of soon, uh, with, uh, the author of a book about Heaven's Gate. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I just was, finished a podcast on that. Uh, forget what that one's called. There, now, was, there was a podcast on a short podcast yeah. on that. Yeah. It was a good yeah. one. Those Nikes, yeah. those black Nikes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, man. Again, yeah. thanks so much. And, um, uh, all the best and, um, hopefully we'll hear some new content from you soon. Thank you. Okay, take care, man.